Well, good morning, church, again. As uh, we continue our worship, let's go ahead and turn in prayer before we dig into the word together. Um, Father, we are just so grateful to meet together and come together and worship and declare that you are worthy of our worship and worthy of our praise. Um, We so long and desire to give to you the praise due your name. Father, as we continue our worship uh, now in the word, we pray that you would prepare our hearts and minds for what you have for us. We ask what we know not that you would teach us, what we have not that you would give us, and who we are not in Christ that you would make us, and we ask it all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Um, Before guys like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates, there was a guy by the name of John D. Rockefeller. Uh, Rockefeller was the richest man in the world, the first billionaire in America. And one day he was being interviewed by a reporter, and he was asked the question, how much is enough? To which he responded calmly, just a little bit more. Unfortunately, that's the mindset of too many, even in the church. Sometimes if we were to ask how much is enough, we might say, well, just a little bigger house, a little nicer car, a little bit more money in the bank, just a little bit more, and then I might be satisfied. This morning, I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles, if you have them, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 19 to 34 together. What we're going to be talking about this morning is what Jesus taught on the subject of finances, what Jesus had to say about money. Um, As you turn there in your Bibles, we're continuing in our series on the family and entitled Family Matters, and finances is the subject we've now come upon together. Um, Jesus, as he's teaching on the subject, is uh, teaching what's often referred to as the Sermon on the Mount, one of the most famous sermons ever preached. And in that Sermon on the Mount, at the beginning of chapter 6, he talked about how to pray, how to fast, and now he turns to the subject of finances. You know, it's always interesting to note just how much Jesus talked about money. If you take a look at the 38 parables within the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus spoke about money in 11 of those. It's interesting to note that Jesus talked on money more than he talked on faith and prayer. If there are 500 verses dedicated to prayer and 500 verses dedicated to faith, there are over 2,000 verses that deal with money. And as we're going to see this morning, there's a reason why. As Jesus is going to say in our text, where your treasure is, there your heart will be as well. And so how we manage our finances and how we spend our money tells us a lot about where our heart is set upon, whether our heart is set upon the things of this world, where moth and rust destroy, or our hearts are set upon the things of heaven that are eternal in value. And so we're going to take some time to talk about what Jesus had to say on the subject of money. Would you stand in honor of the reading of the word, Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 19. (coughs) Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, 
your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God clothes the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith. Therefore do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The word of the Lord, y'all may be seated in the presence of God this morning. This morning, we get to take some time to consider what Jesus had to say on the subject of finances, what Jesus had to say on the subject of money. And what we're going to talk about this morning are three principles that Jesus taught about should, that should guide how we manage our finances and should guide how we make decisions financially. First principle we're going to see in verses 19 to 21 is that we're invited to invest in the eternal over the temporal. Invest in the eternal over the temporal. See the value of investments in eternal treasures over the values of investments in earthly treasures. Jesus gives us a couple straightforward commands here. One stated in the negative, the other stated in the positive. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Why? Where moth and rust destroy, where thieves come in and steal. The question is, what does Jesus mean by not laying up, not, not accumulating wealth and belongings in this manner? Well, let me first say what Jesus is not saying, and we could talk about what he is saying. First, um, Jesus is not forbidding ownership of property or possessions. Uh, throughout Scripture, we see that riches come from the Lord, and we respond to the provisions he's provided us with thanksgiving. In texts like 1 Chronicles 29, 12 through 13, it says, both riches and honor come from you. And you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. In Ecclesiastes 5.19, God not only gives us the ability to make wealth, he gives us the ability to enjoy it. Uh, verse 19 of chapter 5, Ecclesiastes says, As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor, this is a gift from God. And so God is not forbidding that we own property or possessions. And secondly, God is not forbidding, Jesus is not forbidding that we plan ahead. 
Scripture talks about how we should plan ahead. In Proverbs 6, 6 through 8, it says, Go to the ant, you sluggard. Love this verse. Consider her ways and be wise, which having no captain, overseer, or ruler, provides her supplies for the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. And so we should plan ahead. We should be able to provide for our family. You think of scriptures like 1 Timothy 5.8 that says, If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse off than an unbeliever. 1 Timothy 5, verse 8. So what is Jesus saying when he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moth and rust destroy. He's saying, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven in such a way that it leads to misplaced priorities. That you value your earthly possessions and your accumulation of them more than you should. You know what the text tells us here? The reason we shouldn't, we, we shouldn't, um, we shouldn't accumulate or, or lay up treasures on earth is because they're not as valuable as you think they are. The reason is because moth and rust will destroy them and thieves can come in and break and steal them. But a lot of us, we have a tendency to think, no, I think they're pretty valuable. My house is pretty valuable to me. My car is pretty valuable to me. I've got some clothes that I really love to wear, and those are very valuable to me. But the reason they're as valuable as they are to you is because you and I don't see them in light of eternity. If we were to see our possessions and our earthly possessions and our goods, our properties, in light of eternity, we would realize just how little value they have in the long scheme of things. Because even if you take your clothes and put them in a bag so that the moth can't destroy them, <laughs> even though you take your belongings and put them in a safe, so that no one can steal them. One day, you and I will die, and someone else is going to be walking around in your clothes, driving your car, and living in your house. What God is saying here, what Jesus is reminding us of, is that earthly treasures that we lay up for ourselves and accumulate are not as valuable as we think they are. And one of the ways, there are, I guess there's a few scriptures that remind us how we can guard against valuing our earthly possessions more than we should. If I could give you these three, the first one is, is to beware of the love of money. 1 Timothy 6.10 tells us, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Notice it doesn't say money is the root of all kinds of evil, but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And so first we're reminded, beware of the love of money, where that is your ultimate pursuit and your ultimate desire, and you find ultimate security in it. Secondly, beware of idolatry. In 1 Timothy 6, verse 17, it warns us, it says, commands those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty. Now, Paul is instructing Timothy to give these instructions to those who are rich. Well, the question then presents itself, who are those who are rich? Some of us would say, well, I know of some rich folks, but that's not me. I'd like to suggest this morning, you are rich if you've got the essentials of life. If you got a pair of clothes on your back and a roof over your head, you are rich. And the instruction given to those who are rich, who have more than enough, is 
Don't be haughty. Don't be prideful. And then, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Beware of idolatry when it comes to your finances. When you seek ultimate security in the money, in the, in the money that you have in your bank account and the, the investments that you have or the, the possessions that you own rather than in the living God who provides them. What we have a tendency to do is put our faith in our finances over our Father in heaven who provides all things. And so beware of the love of money. Beware of idolatry. And thirdly, beware of discontentment. Here's the problem, as we said at the beginning of the message. How much is enough? Just a little bit more. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10 says, He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver. Nor he who loves abundance with increase, this also is vanity. And so what we find ourselves doing is laying up for ourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves come in and steal, thinking our earthly treasures are more valuable than they are, but the reality is they're not. When you see them in light of eternity, they are not. So that's the first command. Second command stated in the positive, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Why? Where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves cannot come in and steal. In other words, your eternal investments are eternally secure. No one can take those. No one can steal them away. A moth can't come in and destroy it. Rust, when it's exposed to water, some kind of metal exposed to water, cannot rust away. But when you invest in those eternal things, they yield a great benefit. And so what Jesus is teaching is our earthly treasures, they're not as valuable as we think they are. Our eternal treasures, they're more valuable than you ever imagined. Because those Eternal treasures that you're investing in are going to provide an eternal reward that you will enjoy forever and ever and ever. And it puts, us in, it puts things into context for us. When we see them in light of eternity, it makes every difference in regards to how we make financial decisions and how we manage our finances. Now, this morning, for me, how you lay up for yourselves or accumulate earthly treasures is easy. I know how to do that. I just need to go buy a house. I need to get a car. I need to get a bunch of clothes. I need to get all I can, can all I get, and then I need to sit on the can. That's how I get all of the treasures on earth. But how do you lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven? What are those eternal things that we are called to invest in? I'd like to remind us there are three eternal things in this world that we can invest in, God, his word, and people. Those three things are eternal. And if you will invest in God, his word, and people, those rewards will be eternal. I'd like to give us three practical ways to do that. First, invest in the eternal rewards of heaven, seeing their value. First, by investing in your personal relationship with Jesus. That will yield the greatest reward. If you make Christ, your number one priority. If you want to grow in your love and devotion to him, that's how you invest in eternal things, and it will yield an eternal reward. If you're here today and you're not in a right standing with God, because the Bible says each of us are born into this world broken, 
And the source of that brokenness is sin that separates you and I from a holy God. But if you want to invest in eternal things, the first step is to get right with God. And the only way that you can do that is through a personal relationship with Jesus. The good news of the gospel says that Jesus came 2,000 years ago from heaven to earth, went to a cross to die for our sins in order to pay our debt, went to the grave, and three days later rose in newness of life, offering salvation as a free gift to anyone who would receive it. If you want to invest in eternity, the first step is getting right with God through a personal relationship with Jesus. Receive the forgiveness of sins. Receive the promise of everlasting life. And if you know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, the next step for us is to take our next step with God. Every single person in this room I know still has a next step to take with God. No matter what age or stage you may be at, no matter how many years you've been walking with the Lord, I know because we're not yet perfected. We're being sanctified through the process of sanctification, but one day we will be glorified. The question is, what is your next step? That's how you invest in eternal things. Maybe your next step here is baptism, taking that next step, that public profession of faith and saying in the waters of baptism, I'm gonna declare to anybody and everyone, I'm a follower of Jesus. Maybe that's your next step. Maybe your next step is joining a, a group that you can be a part of and you can grow in a Bible study that the church offers. Maybe uh, your next step is serving with your gifts in the body or joining the, the, the membership of the local church here at Twin Rivers. What's your next step that God wants you to take with him? Or maybe for you this morning, your next step is simply getting right with God. You are a believer, you're a Christian, but there's an area of your life out of alignment with his will and his word. And today he's inviting you to deal with it at the cross. Don't leave today with the burden and the consequence of that unconfessed and unrepentant sin. Get right with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so invest in eternally, invest in your relationship with God. Secondly, invest in your relationship with the church. Invest in your relationship with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. That is a great blessing indeed. In Scripture, you have all these one another's in Scripture, and what we're commanded to do as family of God is to encourage one another, love one another, carry one another's burdens. Uh, We are to to celebrate one another's celebrations and carry one another's burdens. And we're called to do all these one another's of Scripture. And that's how you invest in eternal things. And thirdly, you can invest in eternal things by investing in your relationship with unbelievers. One of the great treasures that you can take with you to heaven is an unbeliever who hears the good news of the gospel that you get to minister to them. And they, through the power of the Holy Spirit, are enlightened to the truth of the gospel, and they get to come to heaven with you. You know, the reason Jesus left us here was not simply so we could go to church every Sunday and sing worship to his name, but as we sing worship, as we gather with the people of God, we would take as many people with us to heaven. And there are so many who need to be saved. 
There are so many in our circle of influence who need to be reached, and you can invest in these eternal things that are more valuable than you ever imagined simply by beginning to pray for somebody and their faith and an opportunity to share your faith with them or an opportunity to see them come to Christ. You have an opportunity to to not just pray with them, but, but to share your faith with them and shine the light of Christ in your conversations, inviting them to a group, inviting them to a study, inviting them out to dinner. Imagine what God can do through that. And one of the best ways to start, I often mention a circle of influence, is list just three to eight people who are in your circle of influence. If you say, that's too many people, let me start with one. You write down one person this week who is an unbeliever that you have access to that no one else does. And as you write their name down, commit to pray for that person this week. Whether you have an interaction with them or not, pray for them. Ask God for opportunities to talk with them or to invite them over or to have spiritual conversations about God and then watch what God does. He can do amazing and awesome things. And so we're given these two commands. Don't lay up for yourselves treasure in, on earth where moth and rust destroy, thieves come in and steal. Uh, earthly treasures aren't as valuable as we think they are in light of eternity. And um, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy and thieves cannot come in, in and steal. Those treasures are more valuable than we ever imagined and we're going to enjoy those benefits in eternity that comes in the, in the future. And then he gives us this last reason, this concluding statement. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be as well. It's interesting, Jesus didn't say where your heart is, there your treasure will be. He said where your treasure is, there your heart will be as well. In other words, how you manage your finances and how you spend your money tells a lot about what you, where your heart lies. Whether your heart is set towards things in heaven and eternal things or your heart is set towards earthly things, those things where moth and rust destroy and thieves come in and steal. The question is, where are your treasures? What do you value most? What do you talk about most among what you have? For some of us, oh man, could be my car. Ooh. You should see my car and the way I treat her and shine her up and take care of her, take her on the road. I mean, you should see my car. What is that possession for you? Is it jewelry? Is it clothes? Is it your favorite piece of clothing? Or do you talk about, man, I love God. I love Jesus. I love learning new things about him every day. I'm growing in my love and devotion for, to him I'm thinking about what's my next step and I want to grow in, my, in, in how I serve him and building my character. Am I thinking about, Lord, who are you going to give me an opportunity to witness to today? Lord, I'm going to step out in expectation and excitement to see what you're going to do. What do you brag on to other people about what God is doing in your life as you reach others for, 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 for Christ and as you reach out to the ends of the earth, fulfilling the task that we have been given. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be as well. What does your financial decisions reveal about where your heart lies? This morning, I'd like to suggest this. Every financial decision you make it shows you that it's also a spiritual decision as well. 
You say, wait a second, that candy bar I bought, the gasoline I put in my car? Yeah, because when you recognize God owns it all, and you're but a steward, and what a steward is, is, is an individual who, who has access to everything but owns nothing. You recognize that every financial decision you make, you stand accountable before God. You say, well, wait a second, I'm the one who, who, who got the job. I'm the one who works this many hours a week. I'm the one who gets the paycheck. Yeah, but who gave you the ability to do that? Who gave you the opportunity to get the job and to be employed and to be able to get a paycheck? It all comes from the Lord. Every financial choice is a spiritual decision. And so invest in the eternal over the temporal. How do you do that? If I could give us... <clears throat> just a, a few takeaways, just as a reminder as we've been walking through this. First, see the value of heavenly treasures over earthly treasures through the lens of eternity. Can I invite you every day to think about the choices you're making through the lens of eternity and whether they will have lasting value or temporal value? J.H. Um, Jowett once said, the real measure of our wealth is how much we would be worth if we lost all our money. Let me ask you, if you lost everything, your house, your, your car, the clothes on your back, you had nothing, how much would you be worth? In the eyes of the world, you'd be worth nothing. But through the eyes of faith, through the lens of Scripture, you have riches unimaginable. Being reminded that you and I have an eternal inheritance in heaven that we will enjoy forevermore. See the eternal value of eternal investments and see just how much value earthly investments lack when you see it in context. Secondly, uh, as we've already said, remember that every financial dis choice is a spiritual decision. God owns it all. Then thirdly, guard your heart against the love of money. And I want to give you two practical ways to do that. The first one is to be reminded that one day we're going to leave it all behind. Your favorite earthly treasures, you're going to leave it behind. If if moth and rust don't destroy and thieves don't come in and steal, we're all going to leave it behind. An old, old preacher once said, you'll never see a U-Haul driving behind a hearse, right? You'll never see it because we're going to leave it all behind. Uh, about a few months ago, I was thinking about this because I uh, saw a sign for an estate sale and I decided to go. And it was out in the country somewhere. I was like, oh, I'm curious about where this house is. And so I went over to the estate sale. And it's just kind of an odd thing to be walking through someone else's house. I mean, I went into their, their garage and I was going through the, the, the tools. I'm guessing it was the guy's tools. And I was looking at all, with everybody else, just looking at their tools saying, do I want to take this or take that, buy that? Then I went into the, the closet. It almost feels like you're, you're, you're just breaking into somebody's house. I mean, the clothes are still <laughs> in there. And uh, I saw a wedding dress from years ago that no one had bought yet. And so that wedding dress is there just looking at the guy's clothes and the gal's clothes. And then went into the kitchen and went through all their stuff in the kitchen. I mean, all of it was there. And I couldn't help but think to myself, my wife was happy I didn't bring anything home with me. But I was thinking to myself on the way home, one of these days, someone's going to be going through my stuff. One of these days, people are going to be wearing my clothes. One of these days, folks are going to be going through our kitchen, living in our house, driving our car if it doesn't break down before then. But it's a reminder we're going to leave it 
all behind. That helps us put things into perspective and not love money, possessions, or property and put the higher value that we do that we shouldn't. And secondly, I'd encourage us, how do you guard your heart from the love of money? Seize every opportunity to give generously. Seize every opportunity to give generously. When I think of the example of generosity, I think of the Macedonians that Paul spoke of to the Corinthians church in 2 Corinthians 8. It said this about this church, who invested in the eternal things of heaven and are written about in our text. <coughs> Moreover, brethren, 2 Corinthians 8, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. The Macedonian church was small. They were experiencing possible persecution. And in light of that, they're not, they don't have a lot of finances. People have lost their jobs because they're followers of Jesus Christ. Some have lost their businesses. People don't want to work with them. They're being persecuted, and yet they're known for their generosity. God's not so much interested in the amount as much as a heart of generosity. Verse 2, that in great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear that according to their ability, yes, beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of ministering to the saints. One of the best ways you can break your love for money or expose it altogether is being generous. Be generous with what God has given you and help those who find themselves in need. And so the first principle Jesus taught on that affects every, one, every single one of us, single family, whether you're married with children or children are out of the home, maybe you're in the season of retirement, this relates to every single one of us. Invest in the eternal over the temporal. See the value of the eternal over the temporal. And then secondly this morning, adopt a, a clear vision, not a clouded vision. Adopt a clear vision, not a clouded vision. Jesus just said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be as well. And he transitions to the, the, the metaphor of vision, the metaphor of the eye. And the eye, in light of the previous verse, most likely is a metaphor for the heart as well. In verse 22, it says, the lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, if your eye is good, your whole body will be light. When you think of a lamp, a lamp is that which guides you where you should go. It, the text is telling us if your eye is good, if your eye is healthy, then you're going to walk in the light. You're going to be able to see clearly. But if your eye is unhealthy, if your eye is not well, if your eye is diseased, you're going to have cloudy vision. And if your eye is completely dark, meaning that you're completely blind, you're going to be in complete darkness. We're talking here about spiritual sight and spiritual vision. How you see your finances actually impacts how you see other things as well. And whether your vision is distorted or cloudy or clear, your vision is clear if you see your finances through the lens of Scripture. But your vision will be cloudy if it's distorted by the things of this world, the cares of this world, including materialism. That'll distort your vision and cause it to be cloudy. Covetousness, that will distort your vision and cause it to be cloudy. Discontentment, 
That'll cause it to be distorted and become cloudy. And so what we're really being instructed to do here is adopt a clear vision by walking in the light of the truth of God's word. And in the same way we set our heart towards eternal things and not temporal things, we should set our focus on eternal things and not temporal things and enjoy the benefits that come with it. Verse 22, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. For therefore the light that is in you, if therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? If your is your vision clear or cloudy today? As we consider what that looks like for us, I'd like to invite us to do a few things. The first is adopt a clear vision by walking in the light of God's word. Adopt a clear vision, not a cloudy vision, not distorted because of the sins of this world or the cares of this world, but um, see things through the lens of Scripture. Did you know God's Word has a lot to say about money? It has a lot to say about a number of subjects about money. I'd like to share with you just a few things. Did you know the Bible talks about debt? And we should think about these verses whenever we have uh, the chance to, to either stay out of debt or go into debt. Proverbs 22, 7 says, the rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is the servant to the lender. You know, if ever you're going to get into debt because of a credit card, a loan, even a mortgage, you have to be reminded that you become a slave to your lender. You know, every single month, for whatever reason, I get a bill from our mortgage company telling me that I owe a certain amount of money. And I am a slave to my lender. And I know that. You know why? Because if I don't pay for whatever reason, they'll threaten me and they'll say that they're going to send me to collectors. They're going to give me a bad name. It's going to reflect negatively on that. And so if you are in debt to anyone, you become a slave to that person. So if ever you have a, a chance to borrow even from a family member, even your brother or your sister, you know, who gives you a hard time, I'm now a slave to the one who lent to me. And so we're reminded, think about it in light of Scripture and consider seriously taking on this warning. Um, what does the Bible say about lending money? Luke 6.35 says this, but love your enemies, do good, and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and evil Adopt a clear vision when it comes to finances. So when someone asks you to lend them money, the text tells us to do so, but not expect anything back. I found this principle to be helpful throughout my life because just like you, people have asked me to lend them money. And whenever I've chosen to lend them money, I've always thought about this text to say, I'm not going to lend them money if I'm going to expect it back and then become embittered. I'd like to suggest this morning, it's better not to lend them the money if something happens and they never have the ability to pay you back and you become bitter because of it. Take that into consideration as you make decisions on when, whether you're going to lend or you are going to choose not to, and they can find another means to do just that. And so when you lend, don't expect it back, or at least expect, even though you know they could possibly pay me back, and God bless them if they do. But if they don't, may my heart not be bitter. And if it's going to be bitter, maybe I don't need to be lending out that money. Um, what does the Bible say about co-signing? This is my last example. Proverbs eleven fifteen says, He who is surety or security for a stranger will suffer, but one who hates being surety or security is 
secure. There's a warning there. Proverbs 22, 26 to 27 says, do not be one of those who shakes hands in a pledge, one of those who is surety or security for debts. If you have nothing with which to pay, why should he take away your bed from under you. Now, sometimes you might have a parent who, as their child is heading off into the world, going to college, they say, I need a cosign for your car, cosign for your house. If you're going to cosign, uh, take the warning into consideration that if that person isn't able to pay it back, it falls on you. And if that's too much of a burden or that might cause you to become embittered, really take into consideration not co-signing by considering what the God's word has to say on the subject. So what we're reminded, see clearly when it comes to your finances, adopt a clear vision by walking in the light of the truth of God's word. And God's word has a lot to say about finances. Secondly, adopt a clear vision by surrounding yourself with the right godly influences. I don't know how how much I can say about how much of a blessing it's been for me to have godly influences in my life who, who manage their finances well and therefore encourage me or challenge me to do the same. Those who I can ask for advice about certain things and they can talk to me about what the Bible says and how to apply it accordingly. It's good to have good stewards of the finances someone has as they encourage you and, and help you make decisions on those same things. So check your circle. Who are those people? Hold them near and dear. Don't let them go. You know, I think of a pastor when I was in, I think I was in high school at the time, And this guy really set the example of generosity. I mean, he would go to a restaurant and then um, he would just, he'd just tip just a crazy amount of money to that person. And you just see the joy on that person's face and the blessing that it brought not only him, but but the one that he gave it to. Because it's more blessed to give than to receive. And I get to see it in action. It's so exciting to see stuff like that. And so surround yourself with generous people, those who, who love the Lord and are investing in eternal things and watch how they manage their finances. And thirdly, adopt a clear vision by asking God for help. I don't know about you, but I need help every single day because there are some treasures on earth that I would love to get more of. You know, for whatever reason, they're coming out with a new cell phone every year, you know? Especially Apple comes out with a new cell phone every September, and what they're telling you, your old one is no longer good. You need the latest and the greatest one. And it can be easily to fall victim into the mindset of the, the, the world and invest in the things of the world over the eternal things of heaven. So adopt a clear vision over a cloudy vision. And then thirdly this morning... Um, serve God over money. Serve God over money. Verse 24 tells us this third principle. It says, no one can serve two masters. And so up to this point, we've talked about two treasures. Where is your heart set towards? The treasures of heaven or the treasures of earth? You get to make the choice. We talked about two visions. Is your eyes set on the things of this world or the things of heaven and eternal things? Are you seeing clearly through the lens of Scripture or is your eyes a little bit cloudy? And now we get to make a choice about who's your master. Is your master the Lord Jesus Christ or is your master money? Jesus goes on to say this, no one can serve two masters. I want you to know here, this is not a metaphor of working. This is a metaphor of slavery. 
Now, when you're working, you may be able to work two or three jobs. I've done it. Worked two, three jobs and, you know, balanced it out and uh, timed in there and then timed out and then went to the next one. And so there are times when you can work two different jobs. But when it comes to slavery, you can only serve one master. And what the text tells us is you may think that you can serve God and also serve money, but eventually, because love is a root of all evil, the love of, excuse me, the love of money is a root of all evil, what will end up happening is that root will end up start choking out your love for God as you pursue the things of the world. So it says, for either he will hate one and love the other. Eventually, you may say, yes, my master is God, and also my master is money. And I'm going to get everything I can get and, and, and follow that path for my life. But eventually, you're going to have to choose to do it God's way or to do it your way and get more money versus finding satisfaction in the Lord. Or else he will be loyal to one or despise the other. And then the conclusion, you cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve God and money. The invitation this morning is pick your master. Are you a servant to the Lord Jesus Christ? And are you going to follow his principles for your life and your ministry and your financial decisions? Or are you going to serve yourself? How do you serve God over money? I'll give you four principles here. The first one is remember God owns it all. We've already said this, but it bears worth repeating. God owns it all. That's how you can love God over money and serve God over money. Let me give you some scriptures. Proverbs 11, 5, uh, excuse me, Deuteronomy 10, 14 says, indeed heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God. Also, <coughs> the earth with all that is in it, it all belongs to God. Job 41, 11, who has preceded me that I should pay him? Everything under heaven is mine. God says it all belongs to me. Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord and Lord's in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. Psalm 50, verse 10, for every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. God says it's all mine. Ecclesiastes 5.19, we already mentioned this. As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him the power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor, this is a gift from God. How do you serve God over money? By recognizing you don't own anything. God owns everything. We are simply stewards of what we've been given. I want to remind you this morning, God doesn't just want a percentage of your money. God wants 100% control over all of it. When you submit to Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you're not going to say, okay, I'm going to give my tithe, and that belongs to God, the rest belongs to me, and I'm going to spend it however I want. It's a reminder, no, no, no. God owns all of it. You recognize that, and that's how you serve God over money. Secondly, give God your heart before you give him your money. Sometimes... Folks come to church every so often, and then they say, man, I came again on the Sunday that they preached about money. All they talk about in church is money. I want you to know this morning, if you're here and we're talking about what Jesus has to say about finances, he doesn't want your money unless you first give him your heart. God first wants your heart. 
That you would, in love and devotion to Christ, see your desperate need for Christ and him crucified who died and rose and offers salvation as a gift. And as you see what he has given you, his everything, that you would in turn say, God, I'm going to live my life according to your standards, not mine anymore. So give God your heart before you give him your money. Thirdly, put God first in your budget. If you want to serve God over money, put God first in your budget. Your first decision that will lead to the other decisions, knowing that you are a steward, is giving God of your first fruits. In Proverbs 3.9, it says, honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of your increase. Sometimes folks ask, uh, how, much should I t- should, how much should I give to the church or how much should I give to to, 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 to the ministries of the church? Should I give 10% to the tithe? And what we get to see in the New Testament is you give what God has set apart in your heart. In the Old Testament, you get to see the tithe and uh, throughout the, the law, you get to see that as the, the Israelites were given the tithe, they actually had a, a few different tithes they would give. So they actually gave over 20% of their finances. In the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says, so let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. If you first come to God and say, God, you own it all. If you first come to God and say, God, you have my heart before you have my money, then you can make the decision and say, I'm going to make sure that as I make decisions financially, I'm going to set aside this much to the Lord. And the tithe, the significance of the Old Testament, I would say, is the fact that you give of your first fruits. You don't get to the end of the month and you say, okay, whatever I have left over, God, I'll try to get some money together and give to you. You say, Lord, I trust you. At the beginning, I'm going to set this apart and give it unto you. So serve God over money. Remember he owns it all. Give him your heart before you give him your money. Put God first in your budget. And then fourthly, thank God for the opportunity to give. Did you know giving is an act of worship? That's why we actually give each Sunday. We do that because it's part of our worship service. We don't do it before the service or after the service is done, but during the service because we're saying, Lord, you own it all, and this is an act of worship. You know, I was reading a statistic on giving from back in 2016. I thought I'd share this with you. According to this study from Relevant Magazine, only 10 to 25% of American congregations tithe. The study found that if 75 to 90% of congregations tithe regularly and actually were good stewards of their finances, global hunger, starvation, and preventable death from diseases would be prevented within five years, possibly. The world's water and sanitation problems could be solved. Overseas mission work would be fully funded and more than $100 billion per year would be left over for additional ministry if the church is... Faithful and giving to the Lord out of the abundance which he has given to them. So we're invited this morning to serve God over money. And then lastly this morning, the final principle Jesus gives us is don't worry about money. Don't worry about money. He gives us a few reasons why. We pick up in verse 25. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life. Why should you not worry about money? It's not necessary. 
Worry is not necessary. It says, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? So why should we not worry? It's not necessary. He goes on more, verse 26. Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap, nor nor, um, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And so we're, we're invited to listen to the testimony of the birds. When's the last time you got an opportunity to observe the birds of the air and listen to them chirp? <laughs> and the song that they would sing is, the Lord takes care of us. He feeds us. We don't need to worry, and neither do you. Um, I was reading this. You may have heard it years back. Elizabeth Cheney wrote this. Said the robin to the sparrow, I would really like to know why those anxious human beings rush around and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, friend, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. Truth of the matter is we worry because we act as if we don't trust our heavenly father. We have a heavenly father who takes care of us, and who will care for us? How much more should we see that worry is unnecessary? You know, the fires every now and again bring smoke to our area. And so our girls, I got a now six-year-old and an almost four-year-old, and our our almost four-year-old, for whatever reason, before bed now, it's, Daddy, please don't let the fires come. Are the fires going to come and get us? And I say, No, the fires are not going to come. Two reasons. Number one, God is going to take care of you. And number two, I've got two hoses downstairs, and I can take that fire out pretty quickly. And then she'll ask me again, Daddy, Daddy, uh, the fire is going to get me. I said, I just told you, and we're going to pray for you right now, and we're going to end it all together. And you know what I want from my daughter? I want her to trust me that she's in good hands, she can sleep tight at night, she doesn't have to worry because God's got it taken care of and her father, as far as the Lord has provided me, has, can take care of it as well. It's unnecessary. Text goes on to say, verse 27, which of you by worrying can add a cubit to his stature? In other words, worrying is worthless. <laughs> Reminds me of uh, a husband who asked his wife, why are you always worrying when it doesn't do any good? Quickly pipe back, oh, yes, it does. 99% of the things I worry about don't actually happen. <laughs> Isn't it true? We worry about things that will never cause us trouble, that will never happen, and we, we, we think about it. It keeps us up at night, but it doesn't add any value. When's the last time someone went into the doctor's office, found out they had a diagnosis, and said, all right, everybody, I need you all to come together, and we're just going to worry about it and see if anything's going to help. It doesn't help. It doesn't add it. We pray together, right? We don't worry together. We pray together because we know that's where the power lies. You know, sometimes these days folks say, you know, if if somebody's going through a hard time, I'm sending thoughts your way. What does that do? Like you're just going to think about me? I want you to pray for me to the God of heaven who can actually do something. Don't just send thoughts. Send your prayers my way. Verse 28, so why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. Not just the birds. We get to see the flowers, the lilies of the field, how they grow. They, they neither toil nor spin. They're not working hard in the field. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. 
Amazing. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is tomorrow, is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O of you of little faith? We're reminded, you value so much to God. And if God provides the lilies what they need, the birds what they need, God's going to take care of you. You are so much more valuable than they. You want to know how much, you value, how much God values you? He went to a cross in the person of Christ and died for you, had his blood shed for you. He loves you. Why do we need to worry about anything else in life? He's met our ultimate need. He can meet every other need as well. And so don't worry because it's unnecessary. Secondly, don't worry because it's ungodly. It's what the unbeliever does. Verse 31 says, Therefore, don't worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after these things the Gentiles seek. That may be fitting for the unbeliever who worries all the time, thinking something's going to happen. We don't worry, we pray. We don't need to worry about anything because we pray about everything. You know, if you're so focused on the Lord and your treasures are in heaven and your eye is focused on the things of God and the eternal things of God and you're praying to the Lord over the things that cause you worry, you don't have time to worry because you're busy praying. And so when your mind won't shut off at night, you ever been there? Where your thoughts just, it's time for bed, body. Thought, you know, turn, you almost want to turn it off like a light, and it just keeps going. In those moments, God's inviting you, pray, pray, pray. If it's going to take all night, pray all night. Don't worry about anything. Pray about everything. For after these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. So, so don't worry, it's unnecessary. Don't worry, it's ungodly. Thirdly, don't worry because God has the solution. What's the solution to worry? Verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Put first things first. Moment you wake up in the morning, God, you have my attention God, I'm going to invest in your word. I'm going to spend time in prayer. I'm going to make you first, put first things first. And as you pursue God first, he'll take care of everything else. And then he goes on to say, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself and its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. You know, John Newton once said this, I compare the troubles which we have to undergo in the course of the year to a great bundle of sticks. Far too large for us to lift, but God does not require us to carry the whole at once. He mercifully unties the bundle and gives us first one stick, which are to carry today, and then another, which we are to carry tomorrow, and so on. This we might easily message if, or excuse me, this we might easily manage if we would only take the burden appointed for us each day. But we choose to increase our troubles by carrying yesterday's stick over again today and adding tomorrow's burden to our load before we are required to bear it. This morning, we're invited, don't bear yesterday's burdens. Don't bear tomorrow's burdens. Carry the weight that God has given you today through the amazing grace of God that he's provided each one of us. How do we come overcome worry? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And when you seek him first, you're gonna pray about everything. You're gonna surrender everything into his care as you seek his kingdom above all else. This morning, we get to hear some principles on finances. 
And in light of where you are today, I don't know where you're at with your finances, whether you're worrying about this or worrying about that, whether your vision is cloudy or clear, the invitation this morning is to put God first and he'll take care of the rest. I want to read to you the words of great is thy faithfulness as we conclude together. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All, have I, all I have needed, thy hand has provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Can we pray this morning? Father, we are grateful for these reminders that you own everything in heaven and earth and everything on it. Nothing that we have is given to us apart from you. And so we want to begin by declaring this morning we are grateful for how you provide, not just for the lilies of the field and the birds of the air, but you provide for every single one of us here today. I pray for anyone who is in a state of worry or an anxiety, a stress because of the financial decisions they have to make from day to day. We pray that they would be reminded that you are the provider of all things and you will get them through. Help us, Father, to be faithful, to give to you and serve you as you've called us to and honor you and glorify you as we do. Father, um, I want to pray this morning for anyone who today hasn't yet given you their heart. Lord, and before we give any money, we, you want our hearts this morning. And so I pray that if they desire to, to go all in for Jesus, that they can say this prayer, Father in heaven, I want to begin this, I want to begin right now by admitting my need for Jesus. I'm broken. I'm separated from God because of sin. But I believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be, the one who came from heaven to earth and died in my place to forgive my sins and to provide me eternal life. Today, I confess Jesus as my Savior. I confess him as my Lord, the one I'm going to follow all the days of my life into eternity. I invite the rule and reign of Christ over my life and over all things. To God be the glory. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.